PM Born Bombs. Now, here's Doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Dr. Briggs, we have liftoff. Hopefully, we will not blow up in the air like SpaceX did recently. Oh, that's too soon. Too soon. Humanity's hope. Healthcare could learn from the rocket industry. Oh, stop it. Don't, don't get me started on my disdain for the comparison of healthcare to the airline industry. Just don't even I can go on a whole rant about that. Hey, welcome back to EM Board Bombs. It's me and Dr. Briggs. We're going to be rocking out with you guys today. I'm pretty pumped. Are you pumped, Dr. Briggs? Definitely pumped. Got a great topic. Great topic. We're well caffeinated. Co-founder is with me today. Thank you, co-founder, co-friend, you know. <laughs> To friend BFFs, you know, for life, hashtag. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag BFFs. All right. So for each 10 to 15 minute episode, we like to drop high yield board knowledge. We like to have fun along the way as well. So if you don't like to have fun, you can turn off this podcast. That's totally fine. (laughs) You won't offend us. But if you do like to have some fun, if you like a blue collar podcast, that's what we're all about, Dr. Briggs, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was sipping my latte. There you go. Hey, I'm sipping a latte too. Did you make it? Mm-hmm, sure did. Yeah, I made it too. I just, I, I, oh, I love it. I can't wait to optimize your home espresso setup when I come visit you. I knew you uh, were gonna. A couple um, weeks. I knew you were gonna invite yourself over. Hey, onto the stem. A 72 year old male presents to your ED with a chief complaint of shortness of breath. He is very heated because his favorite host on his favorite TV network <laughs> just got fired from their job. He feels it was an unjust firing. He goes on a rant to you about how life just isn't fair and how his favorite network host got a raw deal, even though they will continue to make millions post-firing and apparently have multi-year contracts that stipulate such. When the patient tells you this, you start daydreaming about what a multi-year contract would look like in the ER and wonder if you should instead get into network television. Classic ER doc moment. Classic ER Classic doc, ER doc and, complaining and, and about. Want, <laughs> there you go. There you go. You are brought back to reality when the patient stops this tangent and tells you that his shortness of breath worsens when laying down. The patient's blood pressure is ninety-two over forty-three. Uh oh. Mm. Code sepsis. Patient, there. Uh oh. Uh oh. And the patient is tachycardic in the one hundreds. You note that the patient has cool extremities to touch, but is not febrile. Which of the following is the next best step? Hmm. Is it A, broad-spectrum antibiotics? Is it B, EKG? Is it C, chest x-ray? Or is it D, one liter IV fluid bolus? Dr. Briggs, before we get into the answer choice, can you talk about EM rapid bomb? Yeah, so EM Rapid Bombs is the only question bank podcast currently in the world right now. Our Rapid Bombs podcast is designed to prepare you for boards and clinical practice. Don't waste your time just studying for boards. Do both at the same time. Each episode is just two to four minutes long where we drop high yield bombs in a question answer format. It gets seared into your memory and you'll get multiple episodes to your feed weekly. So the key here is don't waste your time studying for just the tests with traditional question banks. You can optimize your time by listening to our board pearls. It'll help you with the test, but more importantly, helps you with life. There's life after boards, as we often say. 
and once you uh, stop taking tests, you still have to learn things. And really, this drip format of learning is the best way of preparing <laughs> you. That is true. That is a fact. Yes, this is a fact that you must continue to learn after tests. So I'm going to be honest. We've got so many episodes now that I've been actually going back and listening to our rapid Same. bombs and yeah. still picking up on stuff. Oh, same. I still learn stuff and I listen. Absolutely. Right? In, in my own episodes, too. Oh, yeah, same. I'm not even joking. Yes. There'll be yes. some, now that we've got such a catalog, I'll be like, oh, man, I'd forgotten that pearl, but yep. glad I listened to that for three minutes because it brought it <laughs> yeah. back into memory. Or even just on shift, I couldn't listen to it. I was sitting in like the doc box area, but I like right. scrolled down and read the script because each episode comes with a script. So we give you that yeah. in the script and that's fantastic. So you can just read it too if you're on the go. It, you know, that's yeah. a great point because I'll use that right. to teach yeah. the residents and the med students right. as well in just looking at that script. Hey, uh, correct answer here. It's going to be Choice B, EKG. A mama mm. too would be so proud of us. I know. I know. He's such a nice guy, by He's the way. Hey, shout out to Amal. You know, we interviewed him uh, for one of our pod episodes. An ASAP. What a, what a cool He's dude. He's fantastic. We, had, we were rolling on the floor laughing. I He's know hilarious. he's low key so hilarious. <laughs> low key, yeah. I was not expecting that. Hey, so why aren't we starting broad spectrum antibiotics? Especially yeah. sepsis, right? So, <laughs> oh my gosh! So, look, cardiogenic shock. It's a clinical diagnosis marked by low cardiac output and poor end organ perfusion. Hypotension with a blood pressure less than ninety is the hallmark. The patient may have a quote normal blood pressure but still could not be perfusing well. Although cardiogenic shock is not common, it is a complication of 7 to 10% of patients with STEMI and about 3% of patients with NSTEMI. So you definitely need to be on the lookout for it, especially in this patient group. Now, the key thing here that we were trying to drill down is how do you know if this patient has sepsis or not? Since uh, Dr. Briggs, uh, everything seems to be sepsis, right? Uh, this patient, you, it would not be surprising if you walked into this patient's room and two bags of fluids oh are ready and primed to go. Blood cultures are and the drawn. lactate. We're waiting on the lactate. You better document too. You better document. You said you yeah. drew those cultures before giving antibiotics. God you better forbid. document it, and and you you better get ready to sign those orders and get that timestamp yep. in, right? Or else the hospital will lose money. The lights will start turning off in the hospital because the government will stop They'll giving flicker. money. Yeah, They'll flicker. They'll flicker. We're not meeting our sepsis well, we requirements. We don't get into that. <laughs> no, no digression here. All right, so continue. You been in the Swan Gans yet? <laughs> you walk in and it's being floated. Balloon up. Balloon up. Hey, so how do you know if this patient has sepsis or not? Yeah, that's the, that's the problem here. The problem is how much cardiogenic shock overlaps with other presentations. And that's, you know, shock is, I think, really fun as an emergency doctor because that's really testing our brain and is your interesting sick patients why we went to emergency medicine. But it's really difficult. They overlap a lot. There's other much more common presentations. You know, we're joking about sepsis, but it is much more common than cardiogenic shock. Same with hypovolemic shock. So how do you tell the difference here? Well, it's going to be really early recognition and catching those subtle clues the mortality from cardiogenic shock is really high. It's like 25 to 70%. It varies a lot. Huge. Does improve with aggressive intervention in the ED, though. It does make a difference. Now, emergency docs right. have the opportunity to quickly diagnose and start the treatment of cardiogenic shock. It's really important here because emergency doctors play such a huge role in so many things in the hospital in terms of that diagnostic momentum. When we get things started and work things up, they go upstairs, and that momentum continues. And so if you start off saying, hey, I think this is cardiogenic shock, and here's why— 
versus I think this is sepsis, you're going down a completely different pathway. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's really difficult and you may be starting antibiotics, but still entertaining the thought of cardiogenic shock, which is totally reasonable in some of these patients. Right. So there are two types of cardiogenic shock presentations. One is our favorite word, the smolder. Yes. Okay. Smoldering patients. And the second is rapid decline. The smoldering patient is mm-hmm. gonna come in with hours to days of slowly worsening symptoms. They may not even be overtly hypotensive when you see them, but they're definitely having cold extremities and they are not perfusing well. Cardiogenic shock, like septic shock, can take hours to days to develop. So the patient with quote unquote mild heart failure that you admit to the floor can decompensate while in the hospital. The other group are the OMG group, as I like to say. These are the rapid decline. They come in respiratory distress, Mm. hypotension. They're gonna likely need to be intubated quickly. They look really bad. Now, MI is the most common cause of cardiogenic shock, MI being myocardial infarction. Those of you that don't I think they knew that. For those of you that don't work in the ER. <laughs> so for our dermatologists listening to this, MI is myocardial infarction. Yes. There are no skin okay. findings associated with it. No. Well, I, there may be actually. We'll get into that later. Be, yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you're a dermatologist, write us a review and tell us. <laughs> don't email us. Though. Yeah, don't email us, please. <laughs> but any cause of ventricular dysfunction, of course, and reduced cardiac output is a potential cause, you know, that that can be considered as an obvious cause for cardiac shock. So what other causes here, Iltavad, get into it. So think about the most common causes of heart failure in people less than 40 years old, myocarditis. We've reviewed that ad nauseum. Yeah, your favorite topic. Our EM Rapid Bombs. I know EM Rapid Bombs podcast has covered that so much. Uh, So you're all over that if you listen to some of those episodes. Other causes in all ages include Takasubo, Takasubo cardiomyopathy. Uh, yeah, Takasubo cardiomyopathy, cocaine, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and don't forget about valvular diseases as well. Certain insults can set off a chain of events that cause further decline. So think about like arrhythmias uh, that are not well controlled, uh, any type of acidosis, and again here infection, volume overload as well. When the heart has low cardiac output, the body will attempt to release these maladaptive inflammatory responses, and you're going to get this catecholamine surge as well, similar to what happens in SCAPE, uh, sympathomimetic cardiac uh, acute pulmonary edema. Um, remember, we don't like to say flash pulmonary edema. We're a little bit more bougie than that, even though we are still blue collar, yeah. okay? These patients progressively worsen uh, as more and more uh, sympathetic responses increase afterload, and then you're going to get worsening afterload and saltwater retention as well. Patients with developing cardiogenic shock will present with complaints of dyspnea, chest pain, fatigue, um, and they can have ankle swelling as well. Physical exam may reveal signs of congestion, including peripheral edema, JVD, crackles, rails, and oscillation, and signs of hyperperfusion, such as cool, poorly perfused extremities. Their blood pressure may be normal when you see them at first, but that can rapidly change. This is likely, again, due to that adaptive catecholamine release kind of in the early phases, and you're going to see increased uh, SVR, so systemic vascular resistance, and uh, that's going to transiently maintain blood pressure. So we're really getting into the nitty-gritty of some of this, but this is why it's really important. To do a physical exam? Yeah, because the physical, and the reason I say that is because, again, I gave you that example of that patient who's hypotensive. You walk into the room, two bags of IV fluid are ready to go. People are ready to give 30 cc's per kick to this patient who's already developing mild to severe pulmonary edema, already likely on oxygen therapy as well. And they might even be in some moderate respiratory distress, right? If you don't do a good physical exam and you don't understand what's going on with that patient in that immediate setting, 
and you just reflexively give that patient 30 cc's per kg, this patient is going to be intubated. And it's poor form to catch cardiogenic shock or really make that diagnosis by saying, oh, they responded poorly to fluid therapy and required intubation after it. And the chest x-ray just showed you know, tremendous pulmonary edema, right? That patient in general should just not be getting volume right. unless in very particular you know, settings, right? right? So that's why we're getting into some of that nitty gritty. Right. Um, so you know, in one study, uh, JVD, crackles, rails, and cold kind of clammy skin were the most common symptoms and they clearly differentiate from distributive and hypovolemic shock and and that's why it's really important to remember and that's why even in med school you go over kind of those different shock presentations right of course Uh, one of the key pitfalls is even in patients with clinically significant pulmonary edema on imaging uh, you know they can present with wheezing or even clear lung sounds or rather than actual rails Mm -hmm. Um, another pitfall is that assuming patients that have an EF that's poor, like less than 10%, uh, that's not typical at all. Um, the mean EF in a cohort of cardiogenic shock patients is around 30%, which is reduced but higher than expected, uh, which is why, again, bedside ultrasound is fantastic here. Well, hey, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay, all right, fine. I won't get. I just got really jazzed up about that initial presentation. I'm sorry, Briggs. I'm getting too it's emotional okay. here yeah. talking no, about cardiogenic shock. You know, I, you know what? You take it from here. I'm gonna drop the mic. I'm gonna go cool down. Uh, I'm gonna go cool down real quick. Hey, hey, you take it over from here, okay? Take it over from here for a little bit. I'm gonna go cool down okay. uh, because I just get kind of heated when I walk into those rooms and fluids are primed yeah. and ready to go, uh, and people are just reflexively ordering <laughs> stuff. Okay. So labs may show metabolic acidosis. Obviously, lactate will increase due to peripheral ischemia. There could be renal hypoperfusion. You know, they could have an AKI. They could have, you know, obviously the troponin will probably be elevated. <laughs> surprise um, if it's high sensitivity it'll probably be bumped you know several degrees who knows um yeah. as everything sneezing sneezing i heard now right. causes the, yeah. the higher sensitivity troponin that goes up hey that can be a stress test for some people sneezing but anyways continue anyway so ekg changes uh, are also present too non-specific ischemic changes hey guess what sound the alarm lactate may be elevated oh my god code sepsis right lactate elevate anyway so lactate elevation does not mean infection it you know it just turns out lactates are just markers of inflammation i'm back by the way i, I did my walk did you pace I, did you pace with the microphone i did i paced a little good. bit uh, yeah. i yelled out a little bit i put it on mute good. i'm good that's good i'm glad you're back okay so thankfully we're emergency physicians which means we're really good at ultrasound if you have a hypotensive patient and are unsure of the cause a rush exam is a quick way to differentiate the rush exam has been studied in a meta-analysis with this and been shown to be very sensitive and specific for cardiogenic shock if you do the ultrasound correctly. In those with cardiogenic shock, the left ventricle will be hypodynamic and dilated with poor squeeze. You don't have to measure anything here. This is all qualitative, just looking at it. And you do enough of these, you feel comfortable looking at it and say, yeah, that's really you know slow to beat and there's poor squeeze and the walls aren't coming together. Also, the IVC is helpful here. Now, that this is really interesting. When you and I were, uh, really when I was going through residency, I think this already happened right when you got out, but the IVC thing was like the hot topic. Uh, it it yep. was like all the papers were coming out about it in the early 2010s. Mm-hmm. And then like it crashed and burned like less than five years later. Like people was like, oh, actually, it's not that helpful. And now we're kind of somewhere in the middle, it seems like. It's like, yeah, do it, but it's you can't ride everything on it, which makes sense, like most sure. things on the ultrasound. So the IVC is an indirect measurement of effective intravascular volume. It should have a diameter greater than two centimeter and collapses less than 50% with inspiration. When you see that, that's correlating with an elevated central venous pressure, and that's concerning with cardiogenic shock. It's important to note that it has its flaws. When you measure the IVC, it's gonna be inaccurate a lot of times, especially if the patient has already received 
medications that could change the caliber of that vein, vasodilators, diuretics. And especially if they're ventilated, if they're intubated, forget about it. If they're intubated, right. they're already have that positive pressure ventilation that will change the dynamics of the IVC and it's just not gonna be helpful. So just remember right. that. On your lung exam, you may see pulmonary edema in the form of V lines. That's probably more helpful than IVC dilation is those B lines that'll really help you identify if the patient has pulmonary edema. Cause sometimes the X-ray isn't that good for terms of penetration. Hey, and before you go, you know, some of our listeners might say- I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. <laughs> Always, always. You're never leaving. Um, but for those of our listeners that already tuned us out after the whole IVC mm-hmm. talk yeah. uh, and you know, looking at lung rockets as well, you can take the ultrasound and look at the heart and look for a hydrodynamic and dilated pore squeeze. That's the easiest yeah. part, honestly. Just, just take the ultrasound probe. If you're not 100% sure mm-hmm. uh, before pummeling the patient you know, with fluid therapy uh, and just look at that squeeze, especially in that sub-40 patient who has that you know, myocarditis that caused this and you're seeing signs of like pitting edema on the extremities and signs of volume overload on pulmonary sounds, right? Exactly. So be aggressive about using uh, bedside ultrasound. No one is asking you to determine the exact EF. Uh, this is not one of those where you're uh, calling your cardiologist and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the EF at around, uh, you know, 30, 35%. Repeat, uh, repeating, of course, <laughs> Lever <Leroy> Jenkins, remember? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, but again, I think that's why it's really important. Hey, go into the management. Here. Yeah. Okay. So you have physical exam findings and a history concerning for cardiac shock and your ultrasound may help you too. Your first goal is an EKG if you haven't done one yet. Let's say this patient is hypotensive and they went down the whole code sepsis thing. They went from triage. I could just see this happening like literally tomorrow at work. They come in from triage. The nurse is like, oh, blood pressure's low. Boom, into a room. Boom, lactate, fluids, antibiotics. And then you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute. And you do the math. You do everything. You're in the room. You're like, this patient has cardiac shock. And then you do an EKG. This is what sometimes happens. (laughs) They go to this whole sepsis thing, but EKG tells you, oh, whoops, they have... ST segment elevation everywhere. So the EKG is going to tell you if you need to go to the cath lab. Remember that 70% or so of all cardiogenic shock cases are MI related. So Mm. an EKG and serial EKGs, again, just really making a mama too happy here. If you need to do that, serial EKG is very helpful. Obviously a chest x-ray. We haven't done that yet either. And then, okay, you get the labs, whatever, who cares? They're going to be admitted to the hospital. More importantly, how will you treat their blood pressure? This is the thing that's talked about the most. Now for the airway first, these patients are at high risk for coding immediately after intubation, probably higher than your sepsis patients. You want to make sure to maximize their oxygenation hemodynamics just before going in there gung-ho like a cowboy and sticking a blade mm-hmm. into their throat and then causing the code. So right. small fluid boluses, push-dose pressures, pre-oxygenation, et cetera. These patients rarely tolerate NIPPV, you know, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation like BiPAP or CPAP. You can do that as a bridge, but don't expect these are not your COPD patients or skate patients where you give BiPAP and CPAP and you come back 30 minutes later and they're fantastic. These patients are in a spiral of death and you will have to intubate them if they're in respiratory distress. It's just a fact, but optimizing them beforehand is really important. So Iltifat, what medication are you going to give patients with cardiogenic shock for perfusion? And if you say dopamine for renal protection, I'm going to step out of this podcast right now. uh, so hey, it's not it's not dobutamine. Dobutamine is an inotrope. It means it's also not dopamine. Right? It's not the D's. Okay, let's just let's just stop with that. Right? Meaning it's going to increase cardiac output, but it will also cause vasodilation. So the balance between increased cardiac output and peripheral vasodilation is going to lead to that you know classic teaching that one third of these patients will drop their blood pressure, one third will have no change in blood pressure, and one third will have increased blood pressure. 
It's hard to predict which patients are going to have which response. This can be combated by initiating a vasopressor first and then adding the inotrope when blood pressure has become relatively stable. So you're shooting for MAPS greater than 65. Uh, you know, look, there's no optimal vasopressor for this indication, but uh, hey, Dr. Briggs, you and I, remember how you like to say uh, there's one presser to rule them all? Yeah, God's presser. What is it? Norepinephrine. Oh, yeah, baby. Now, then you can, it can be followed by dobutamine or epinephrine, uh, but remember the one vasopressor to rule them all. It really is incredible how that one presser does everything. It blows, it, it, blows it, my it mind, is. at least. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. All right, let's wrap it up. Hey, I think the key thing that we were trying to get across with this episode is really the recognition of cardiogenic shock and why it's so important to not reflexively pummel these patients with IV fluids. Uh, we mentioned some of the key things uh, to look for on physical exam. We mentioned how to treat these patients as well. Hey, so we're going to wrap it up. Uh, remember to follow us on EM Board Bombs. We've got a great Twitter handle, great Instagram on the Facebooks and social medias. I think we've got uh, almost what, like probably like an aggregate more than 20,000 followers on all our socials. Uh, pushing stuff out. Check out all our handouts on emboardbombs.com. Uh, we have a nice surprise in store later this summer. Uh, we're going to be, oh, actually, I'm sorry, I almost let it slip. I almost let it slip uh, what's going to be happening. Don't, don't reveal a surprise uh, yet. Come on. I know, it's going to be a surprise. Ooh, it's going to be a surprise. Hey, remember EM Rapid Bombs, emrapidbombs.supercast.com. That is our premium podcast platform over 350 episodes now it's a great great resource for those who are not only studying but just hashtag em life love the fact that we're getting a lot of love uh, and subscribers from canada australia just different countries so it's been pretty awesome to see that and pretty awesome to see that a lot of seasoned attendings are signing up as well uh, just because again it's a drip learning you're going to get a couple episodes delivered to you on a weekly basis uh, it's a great way to keep up to date on content. And again, those episodes are just three to five minutes long, quite short and quite entertaining. You can find that link in our show notes as well. It's a great way to support all the other work that we do as well. Um, so there's the handouts and the website and everything else. Hey, Dr. Briggs, I appreciate you. I just want you to know that. And um, I will not be ordering a lactate on a cardiogenic shock patient. I would like to reassure you. I'd like to reassure well. you that I'm not going to give 30 cc's per kg to my cardiogenic shock patient. Side. Okay. Um, but what I cannot reassure you is that once the patient is admitted, uh, a certain test might be ordered. Also, um, Vosin will always be ordered for inpatient. Vosin. You know, I've, I've given you so many shout outs on that, on our uh, rapid bombs. I, I noticed that. Thank you. I, I listen and I really appreciate it. It brightens my I'm, day. Thank I'm you. glad. Sometimes I feel like, uh, you know, I just need to hear that from you sometimes. Just, you know, hey, I appreciate you, Hussein. Just because I feel like a lot of times it's just more me, you know, just reaching out, being like, hey, do you appreciate the work that I do? Yes, that, that, that's all the case, uh, even though I call you um, quite regularly to check in how you're doing. Let's take this off air. Let's take this off air. Okay. All right, we'll, we'll continue this. Is this being, oh man, we're still recording. Okay. Yeah. All right, I think so.